This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. And there is much to be said. We already touched on it when we went through the content of the epistle. But what we have to do now is look at the way the author is presenting theology. We're going to look at Old Testament citations. We are going to look at the priesthood in every chapter of Hebrews. We're going to look at the priesthood of Christ from the Old Testament point of view. We are going to look at the Levitical law and the oath of God. Next, we're going to look at Jesus fulfilling the obligations of the Aaronic and Melchizedekian priesthoods. And last, we are going to look at the covenant. Now that all of you are supplied, I would like to begin with the Old Testament in exhortations. Let's again go to chapter 2, the first four verses. Here you have an exhortation. I would like to read the verses for you and with you. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard Him, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. What the author is doing, he is calling to mind the Old Testament example of disobedience to the Mosaic Law. I pointed this out already that in verse 2, the word message, word is logos, the word message is actually the law of God given by God from Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, spoken by angels, typical for a Jew to talk about angels communicating, being the intermediaries between God and and his people. The Ten Commandments were binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. And go through the Old Testament, and you'll find it God punishes his people because of disobedience. So, this verse, then, and I'm talking about verse 2, and definitely refers to the Old Testament example of disobedience to the Mosaic Law. Well, then I go on and go to chapter 3, 
verse 7, and then on through chapter 4, verse 13. There you have a definite reference to the people of Israel going through the desert and being disobedient to God, even though God was, so to speak, right above them with a cloud during the day, and the pillar of fire by night, and the manna on the ground every morning, water out of a rock. Now, what else do you need? You know, sometimes people ask me, how do you know there is a God And I tell them, look, I live a thankful, joyful life and I find that the Lord gives me food and drink. You people take that for granted. I don't. I give thanks to my Father. I have good health and I thank my Lord for it. I receive protection as I drive on the highway and the city streets. The Lord is with me. The Lord gives me work to do and I do it joyfully. And He gives me the ability to do so and I thank Him for it. And everything that I experience and receive out of His hand is met with thankfulness. Yes, the Lord is alive. He is good and gracious in spite of my shortcomings and I have them too. And that's my answer. How can I prove that God exists in nature? Well, look. Take a tree. Take a plant. Take a flower. Can anyone make this? <laughs> well, maybe out of plastic, but it doesn't live. It's dead. Nature all around us tells us about the existence of God, the Creator and the upholder of His creation. And then I can say, and look at His Word, Scripture. It is filled with promises. And these promises are being fulfilled in the church. And therefore, yes, God exists because he answers prayer. Now, what else do you need? Okay, in my notes, I refer you to the failure at Kadesh Barnea. And we stopped for that yesterday. I'll do it again. Look at verses 16 through 19 of chapter 3, the epistle to the Hebrews, who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. 
Notice these are rhetorical questions in which everyone in Israel was able to answer. That is, knowing the history. Who were they? Well, we know. And then he answers it by another question. Were they not all those Moses led out of here? Yes, they are. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Well, we know that too. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? Yes, we know this. And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest? If not to those who disobey. Yes, we know. It was a failure at Kadesh Barnea. And the same thing is true with chapter 4, verse 2. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. They received the living word of God, the good news. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Well, then I go on to chapter 10. And in chapter 10, you have the quotation from Psalm 40. And I'm now referring to chapter 10, verse 19, and on through verse 39. There's the warning. Look especially at verse 28, 10, 28. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, how cruel can you be? Two or three witnesses and you have to be put to death? Yes, God points this out in the Old Testament law. Disobedience to the Mosaic law, would be punished by death. And now note, in verse 29, the contrast. This is what happened in the Old Testament days. Verse 29, How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace, sinning against the triune God. We're going to deal with that later this morning, so I'm only calling this to your attention. The last, and that is found in chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 29 where you read the warning. I'm not going to take time out to read that whole section. The only thing I'm going to do is, once more, turn to verses 17 and 18. 16 and 17, excuse me. 16 and 17. See that no one is sexually immoral, comma, or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. 
And then also notice verse 25 and 26. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them from on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. And now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens, which is a quotation from Haggai, Haggai 2, verse 6. Now, these are all Old Testament examples which brings to mind, and I'm really pointing out the obvious, that he is writing to Jewish people, Hebrews, who knew the Old Testament and could never say, well, it was entirely new to us, you know, I joined the church coming out of paganism. That was not the point. He is talking to Hebrews who know the Scripture by way of the Septuagint. Okay, point two. The priesthood is found in every chapter of Hebrews. Sometimes you say, well, I never realized that <laughs> that's a reference to the priesthood. Well, take chapter 1, verse 3. There you read about the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word after he had provided purification for sins. And there you have the priesthood of Christ. We go on to 2 verse 17. And what you find as we now go through the entire epistle, chapter by chapter, you will find that he, the writer is building up his point of who the high priest actually is. Notice verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like, try again, for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. We stopped for that yesterday, remember? Good. The high priest is merciful and faithful. Martin Luther puts it this way, I believe, in his German Bible, that he might become merciful, gamma, and a faithful high priest. I would rather take these two adjectives together, modifying the high priest. He is merciful, and at the same time, he is faithful. Then he picks it up in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. So this is now the second time in the epistle that he mentions the concept high priest. And he adds to it that Jesus is the apostle. 
Now, you take the word Jesus just for granted, don't you? Jesus is Jesus. <laughs> you find that everywhere throughout the New Testament, yes. But note, in verse 6, he says, but Christ. And I would like to submit to you that in verse 1, when he uses the word Jesus, he is talking about the historical Jesus who walked and talked and taught on earth. And when he mentions Christ, he is talking about the Messiah, the office holder. We're talking about his office. And there's a distinction. Jesus is an apostle, as I pointed out. He is the messenger from God to human beings. And he is also the high priest. Now, something very simple, and you've heard it before, I trust. If not, here it comes. A prophet brings the word of God to God's people. So, he is the voice of God. The priest represents the people of God and offers prayers and petitions and thanksgiving to God. Are there two offices? Yes, in ancient Israel, yes. You have the office of the prophet and you have the office of the priest. In Jesus, they're combined. Apostle, prophet, and priest. Is both. We move on to chapter 4, verse 14. Now he's going to talk at rather, at length, about the priesthood, that is the high priesthood. And it begins by saying, in verse 14 of chapter 4, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. He's going to pick up this thought again in chapter 9, verse 24. We'll get there eventually. But here it is, the great high priest. He is majestic, he is above every high priest. Josephus somewhere teaches us that there were 83 high priests. 83. Over a period, roughly speaking, of 1,500 years. Maybe almost 1,600. But let's say 1,500 round numbers. 83. Simple maths will tell you how long they were in office. And now we have a great high priest. <laughs> he towers above all these 83. And he has entered, typical Hebrew here, the heavens. In Hebrew, we have the plural. In the word Elohim, God. We have the plural in Shemayim, heavens. So we talk about the kingdom of the heavens, plural. And you have the plural in the word 
water. Still remember the Jewish guide in Israel. And this was a hot afternoon. He said, I'm so thirsty, I could drink a whole glass of waters. And his Hebrew was shining through his English, which he spoke very well. All we can say is, heaven. No, says the writer to the Hebrews, heavens. That's the place where God is. God's presence. Jesus, the Son of God, entered heaven, the presence of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And then he continues and explains who the high priest is, comparing Jesus to the high priest Aaron. Aaron is called, so is Christ, and Christ is a royal priest. Verse 5 and 6. Verse 5, royal. You are my son today. I have become your father. 6, the priest. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And that's the very first time we read in the epistle the reference to Melchizedek. Repeat it again, of course, in verse 10. He was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. I have more to say about Melchizedek in a moment. And then he has exhortations. Throughout chapter 6, last part of chapter 5, throughout chapter 6, and then he continues and finishes up chapter 6 by saying, He, that is Jesus, notice in verse 20 he says, Jesus who went before us has entered in on our behalf, that is behind the curtain. He has become high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And now the time has come in chapter 7 to teach about Melchizedek. I'm only going to refer you to verse 3 where he talks about Melchizedek who was without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Josephus, the Jewish historian, in his chapter on his own personal life, says that I had to go through the registers in order to prove that I am of Levitical descent. I'm a priest. And that's what people had to do. Now, some of you say, well, I know my grandfather. (laughs) That's where it stops. We had... Dr. Paul Long, I may mention his name here on campus, who said to his class one day, I want all of you to work out your genealogy as far as back as you can and come back tomorrow and tell me about it. Right after class, one Nigerian student came to him and said, Sir, I don't have to wait till tomorrow morning. I can give it to you right now. I can mention 17 generations. Four generations for a century that is going back into the 1500s. 
And then we have another <clears throat> professor here on campus by the name of Dr. Enoch Wan, who was born in China. He said, that's nothing in his own quiet way. He said, I can do it for a hundred. What? A hundred generations. That's the time of Abraham and <laughs> back, <laughs> so to speak. Well, <clears throat> What we have here is Melchizedek. No genealogy. <clears throat> Without beginning of days or end of life. We don't know when he was born. We don't know how old he became. <clears throat> Look, <clears throat> when you go to chapter 4 in Genesis, you're told how old people became. Adam, 930 years. And then Methuselah and so on. The interesting part is, when you go through the Old Testament, you will find the ages of God's people. And when you go and look at the unbelievers, starting with Cain... You will not find a genealogy or ages, how long they lived. It is as, were, as it were God saying, I couldn't care less because I have not redeemed these people. But Abraham, 175. Jacob, 147. And on and on it goes. Interesting. It tells us something. Now, as I pointed out, <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews says, this man, Melchizedek, is like the Son of God. He remains priest forever. That is, the priesthood of Melchizedek lasts forever. Not that he, as a person, lasts forever, but the priesthood does. We move on to 8, verse 1. Here's a summary before he goes into a new topic. And the new topic is the new covenant. He writes, the point of what we are saying is this. We do, not, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by man. In other words, Jesus has entered the very presence of God, which is called the tabernacle, if you please. And Jesus has confirmed that he has atoned for our sins. On earth, to be exact, but it is certified in heaven. We go on to 9, verse 11. 9, verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. Once more, a reference to the very presence of God. Well, why do I say presence of God? 
when Aaron entered the temple, not temple, the tabernacle, and then walked through the holy place, then separated the curtain and entered the most holy place in the presence of God. Now, I'm not trying to be frivolous about it and cheap. That's not my point. But I dare say that when Aaron entered the very presence of God, that he quickly sprinkled the blood and left. And then he came back and he quickly, second time, sprinkled the blood and left. He didn't say, Oh, I'm so happy, Lord my God, to be in your very presence. What a privilege it is to be here. Yes, Lord, let's have a chat. No. We read in the Talmud that he had a, a piece of rope tied along on his leg. In case God would strike him, then they could pull out his body. What I'm telling you is that to be in the very presence of God, and I'm using a teenage expression now, is awesome. (laughs) Frightful. And now Jesus, on our behalf, has entered the very presence of God, not for a moment, but forever. Not fearful, but joyful. And he's saying to us, I have prepared a place for you in my Father's house, in His presence. There it is. See it? We move on. Verse 24, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary. There was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Once more, in case you fail to get the point. Once more. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. He cleansed us from sin. 10, verse 21. 10:21. I begin reading at verse 19. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. We have a high priest who has gone through the curtain That is, he is in the very presence of God and he opened it by way of his body, the curtain. 
A picture, obviously, of Jesus dying on Calvary's cross. And I pointed out to you by a new and living way, freshly slaughtered, literally translated, and alive, a fact of history, no, alive today. Eleven, verse twenty-eight. You thought there was no reference to the priesthood in chapter eleven, which is a chapter on the heroes of faith. I so thought, what do you do? <laughs> well, hold on. In verse twenty-eight, we read about Moses. By faith, Moses he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. There's a reference, a forerunner, mind you, to the high priest, the sprinkling of blood. Oh, yes, I know Moses sprinkled the blood. But Moses, as we saw yesterday, Moses is the mediator between God and his people. And so is Jesus. Then we have 12.24. In that beautiful passage, beginning at verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirit, the spirits of righteous men made perfect. And now 24. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And last... Chapter 13, verse 12. I began reading at verse 11. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Well, there we have an overview of the priesthood of Christ in the epistle to the Hebrews. Every chapter has something to say about this priesthood. I continue and talk about the third point, teaching the priesthood of Christ from the Old Testament. And I say, Aaron occupy the highest office in Israel's cultic practices. Yes, he was appointed by God to be the high priest. And then, after he passed away, his sons and the grandsons, and so throughout the generations. 
I say that priesthood of Aaron could not be terminated but was passed on from generation to generation on the basis of Aaronic lineage. Now, as we noticed in chapter 7, the writer is saying Jesus is not of the tribe of Levi. He's of the tribe of Judah. God didn't say anything about the priesthood in connection with Judah. Judah represents the royal line of Israel. So we can talk about the kingship of Jesus, but not the priesthood. So that's all clear. Then, what you do with the priesthood? Well, I'll put something on the board here. The writer of Hebrews is saying, look, here is Melchizedek. We'll call him Mel for short. And we also put a date down, 2,000 years before Christ. And now we go on. Now, when you mention Melchizedek by way of Genesis chapter 14, how Abram, coming back from the war, is blessed by Melchizedek, and the one who is blessed is lesser than the one who is blessing. He is the greater. And the one who receives a tithe, Melchizedek, is greater than the one who is giving the tithe, Abraham. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, and what do you do with Genesis chapter 14, verse 18 and on? And the answer is, well, that's antiquity. You know, that's prior to Abraham, uh, that is, the (coughs) offspring of Abraham, and I'm talking about Levi now, the grandson. And then eventually, hundreds of years later, you have Aaron, uh, Aaron. Yes, okay, we know, we know. But the writer says, Melchizedek stays. Why? Well, now we go on and we talk about the year 1000 and here is David. 1000 before Christ. Round numbers. And David says in Psalm 110, Let's have a look at Psalm 110. In verse 1 he says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now do you remember... In Jesus' last week on earth, probably two days before he was crucified, he was asked by the Pharisees to identify himself. And will you now turn with me, keep your finger please at Psalm 110, but will you turn with me to Matthew 22.
We read verse 41, Matthew 22:41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, he had been asked a number of times, well, who are you? And now Jesus is saying to them, what do you think about the Christ? In other words, the Messiah. That's a relevant topic. Whose son is he? <clears throat> well, these people, Pharisees and the teachers of the law, uh, they knew the Old Testament scripture by heart. Yes, okay. So, immediately, the answer is, the son of David. Yes. Okay. Now, I'm going to vary just a moment. So, hold on. Do you remember that Jesus healed a man who was blind and who also was mute? And I refer you to Matthew 12, verse 22. They brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him that he could both talk and see. Let me stop you for just a moment. You follow me? If I would ask you, mention one or even two, People in the Old Testament who were stricken with leprosy and were healed. Come on. Miriam. The sister of Moses and Aaron. And the other? Okay, Naaman. Right, you made it. Naaman. Now, is there any evidence at all in the Old Testament that someone who was blind was healed? And the answer is no. But in Isaiah, you will read at least four times, four different places, when the Messiah comes, he will open the eyes of the blind. Now, this is what we read in Matthew 12. 22, when they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And the common people, notice the common people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Which is another word for Messiah. Now we go back to chapter 22. Notice. The question is asked, who is he? And the answer, the son of David. He replied, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's a quote from Psalm 110. We'll refer to it in a moment. Hold on. Continuing. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Conclusion. No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> Keep your finger at that spot, and we, let's go back to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. 
I'd like to point something out to you, and I'm sure this is in your Bible. Verse 1 reads, The Lord, capital letters, do you see that? Says to my Lord, lowercase letters. See it? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, Yahweh is saying to the Messiah, and David says, and he is my Lord. Now, that's simple, isn't it? You and I can understand. And certainly the Pharisees and the teachers of the law should have known that. And then Jesus says, if then David calls him Lord, go back now to Matthew 22, and unfortunately, the printers have not given us the distinction of Lord, capital letters, and Lord, lower. Yes, Lord, lower. That's here. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Now, that's a double take. How do you explain? And they would have to say, in all honesty, yes, he's talking about the Messiah. And yes, Jesus, you are the son of David, the Messiah. They would have been honest. What you read is no one could say a word in reply, and from that day no one dared to ask him any more questions. And that's it. That was the last of the conversation, the last on that Wednesday before Jesus' death on Calvary's cross. Now, back to 110. In 110, David clearly says, Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord. Okay, so he's of royal descent. Follow me? Now we move to verse 4. The Lord capital letters, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. And here's the oath. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And now look at the board. The Jews can no longer say, well, Melchizedek, that's old-fashioned, you know. <laughs> that. It's in the olden days. No. <laughs> what do you do with David? See, we could put it this way, that in between we have Moses and we have the year 1500. And he says, look, now we continue and now it is the year 30 A.D. The year 30. And you theologians, what have you done with the concept of Melchizedek in Psalm 110, verse 4? And they say, nothing. Never thought about it. And the writer of Hebrews says, and now I'm going to teach you something 
and that is straight from the Old Testament Scriptures. So you cannot accuse me of being a flaming liberal. I'm not. I'm going back to the Scriptures where you, teachers of the law, and they are the equivalent of a man holding a Ph.D. degree in Old Testament studies. Paul was among them. You who know the law, you who know the prophets, you should have been the first to say, that's the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, what about that priesthood? That priesthood is everlasting. Today, you've become the priest in the order of Melchizedek. And that is that everlasting present. Okay, that is about all I'm going to say on that point. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.